For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Imagine you're sitting in your couch watching television and there's a knock at the door. You go to the door, you look out on your front porch and there's a guy standing there. And he says, hi, my name's Jim. I'm your new neighbor. We're having a cookout. We just moved in. We're three houses down there. We're having a cookout this Friday. Just want to invite you to come over and hang out with us, party with us. What do you think? You know, in that situation, you wouldn't, you wouldn't ask to see photo ID that this guy's name is really Jim. You wouldn't demand to see his last three years of tax returns. You wouldn't be taking fingerprints or asking for references to show that his name really is Jim, that he really does live three houses down from you. No, he's really not asking that much from you. You'd be inclined to be like, sounds good. Maybe I'll see you Friday. You go and you sit back down. There's another knock at the door. You look out on your porch again and there's a different guy standing there. And he goes, uh, sir, my name's Officer Jim. I'm with the uh, county police department. I'm going to have to ask you to put on these handcuffs and get in my car. I'm going to have to take you downtown to answer a few questions. Now, th this is a case where there's a little more risk. <laughs> I'm less inclined to trust this officer Jim than I was neighbor Jim. I'd want to see some identification. I'd want to see a police badge, a badge number. I'd want to look out there and see there is a real genuine police car sitting there. <laughs> and not a 1984 Dodge Charger. <laughs> I'd take a look at those handcuffs and I'd say, are those real handcuffs? I'd want to see some verification, some credentials. If I'm going to put on some handcuffs and get in a guy's car with him and go wherever he wants to take me. <laughs> <laughs> now imagine this scenario. You open your door and there's another guy standing there. And he says, hi, my name is Jesus Christ. I'm fully God. I was here before the world was created. In fact, the world was created by and through me. I died for your sins. I rose from the dead. I'm coming back one day to make this whole world new. I, I want to forgive you. I want to I give you eternal life. I want you to come with me and we, you can rule the world with me. Put your trust in me alone, he says. Now that's a case where I'd really want to see some credentials. I'd want to see some identification. I'd want to see some evidence that this guy is really who he, he says he is. You know, either this is the greatest man who's ever lived offering me the greatest thing I could ever be offered, or it's a hoax, it's a fraud, and I should slam the door in his face. Well... God knows there's a lot of false saviors and a lot of false religions walking around door to door claiming to be the way. And so that's why he has given us Bible prophecy. Among other things, this is possibly the greatest evidence he has given us for the, the truths of his word and specifically for his son, Jesus Christ. Norm Geisler says there's 191 Old Testament prophecies predicting the Messiah. He says if even 48 of those are true, a quarter of those, 
the odds of one person fulfilling 48 would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. God says, I have given you predictive prophecy in my word, especially related to my son, because I want you to know this is from me. This is too important. You need credentials. You need evidence. You need some identification. He says in the book of Isaiah 41, he says, present the case for idols. Let them show what they can do, says the Lord. Let them tell us what the future holds so we can know what's going to happen. Yeah, tell us what will occur in the days ahead. Then we'll know your gods. In fact, do anything, good or bad, do something that will amaze and frighten us. That's the problem with idols. They can't do anything. But no, you're less than nothing and you can do nothing at all. And those who choose you pollute themselves, he says about idols and all false religions. He goes on in Isaiah 46. He says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Well, tonight we get to study with probably my favorite prophecy in the Bible. Daniel chapter 9. One of the greatest, I think the greatest prophecy predicting the coming of Jesus Christ as the Savior, what he would do, and that he will be killed, and it predicts it to the very year, 33 CE. Let's take a look at what Daniel has to say. And by the way, there's some numbers tonight. It's a little complicated. We're going to have to do some math. <gasps> in fact, I'll need somebody with a phone with a calculator here down in front. Anybody want to be my volunteer to, to check my math on this? Brad, all right. Good. But it's going to be worth it, okay? You've got to hang in here. Daniel writes in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. This is the fourth vision he gets in, the, in his lifetime that we know of. The fourth of five telling the future. He says, it was the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede. We're in about 539 BC. The Medes have just conquered the Babylonians. Daniel has been in Babylon. He was taken there as a teenager, as a prisoner of war. He's been there for almost 70 years at this point. He's an old man by now. He's in his mid-80s. And he gets this, he's, he's reading his Bible is how this whole thing starts. He's reading his Bible and he's praying that day. And he says, during the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, learned from reading the word of the Lord as revealed to Jeremiah the prophet. He's reading the book of Jeremiah. Daniel, when he was a, a boy growing up in Jerusalem, he probably heard the preaching of Jeremiah on the streets of the city. People knew in Jeremiah's day he was a prophet, he was speaking the word of the Lord, and now Daniel had a collection of Jeremiah's writings that he viewed as scripture in his own day, and he's reading these prophecies. And he says he was reading in Jeremiah that Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years. Jerusalem had been conquered and torn to the ground by the Babylonians, the temple, the city, everything. It was a disaster. And... He was reading Jeremiah the prophet predicted this desolation. In Jeremiah 29.10, we have this prophecy. Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. 
And so he said, after 70 years, I'm bringing you back. And Daniel's thinking, it's about 70 years. Do we get to go back? Is God going to restore it? He, he didn't symbolize these numbers or spiritualize. He, he viewed it as 70 literal years. And then something big is going to happen. Why did they get taken into exile? Why did Jerusalem have to lie desolate for 70 years? Well, because they never really followed God's law. God said, I'm going to leave you in this land I've given you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to keep you safe. You just need to be faithful to me. Follow the commands I've laid down in my word. And the people never really did. And it went on for so long after so many warnings and after so many temporary disciplines, God finally said, you guys are out of here for a time until you can come back and maybe you'll appreciate it and maybe you'll be a little more likely to listen when you come back to this land. Now, why did the exile last 70 years? That's another interesting question. It was tied to one particular law that was used to calculate this apparently, which was known as the Sabbath years. You see, what God said was in Leviticus 25, there was supposed to be a Sabbath rest for the land. You know, people were supposed to get a Sabbath off every week, one day of every seven, but it was also so, supposed to be one year of every seven. It was rest for the people, but it was also rest for the land. They're supposed to not plant anything, just let the fields lie fallow. They could go out and pick whatever sprung up that year, but they were supposed to trust God to provide for them. Today, we know this is good agricultural practice to crop rotation, letting fields lie fallow periodically. Back then it was, God knew that too, but it was also supposed to be an act of trust in him. Well, every seventh year, they were supposed to take a Sabbath year off. Apparently they had skipped 70 Sabbath years. Maybe it had been 420 years, maybe since the time of King David. That's when, you know, if you go back 420 years, they'd skipped for 420 years. It looks like they never really followed this law. We have no evidence they ever did this. Followed this. And so God was finally like, all right, we're taking them all at once. <laughs> it's like you don't use your vacation time and they're just like, you're just, you're done, all right? You're off for 70 years. <laughs> it was a vacation they were supposed to take. They wouldn't do it. So it, was, it became an exile. <laughs> so God sends them off to Babylon. Jerusalem is lying desolate, but God promised, I'm going to send you back after seven years. Daniel believed that promise. Sure enough, that's exactly what God did. And so the, the Sabbath year law and the exile of 70 years, these are connected to one another in a passage like 2 Chronicles 36. It says, the message of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled, the one we just read. The land finally enjoyed its Sabbath rest. Lying desolate until the 70 years were fulfilled. You can see it very clearly all coming together there. There's no smoke and mirrors here. God sent him away and now God is going to bring him back. And so Daniel starts praying as he's seeing this prophecy. He's getting excited about Bible prophecy being fulfilled in his day. It's very exciting when you see that. And he said, and he starts asking God, what is the future going to be? God, um, where are we headed? Are we going back and what next? And so he's got this awesome prayer for about 20 verses in Daniel 9 that we don't have time to get into tonight, but you should read that. But he gets to the end of this prayer, and then God sends an angel to show him what will happen next. And in Daniel 9, 24, we see this incredible prophecy begin. It's only two and a half verses that we're going to look at tonight. He says, 77s 
have been decreed for your people and your holy city, the Jews and Jerusalem, the people and the holy city. 77s for what? It's a period of time that'll give you time to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, it's a little hard to tell exactly what each of these things are are referring to, but it sure does seem like some of them aren't fulfilled yet, even today, bringing in everlasting righteousness, making an end of sin. I I see sin all the time. I I see lots of problems in this world. You know, this sounds like it's talking about the kingdom of God, that Messiah, the Savior, is going to come back and set up. And in fact, these 77s, that's exactly what they predict. They predict a period of time lasting all the way up to the end of human history. And tonight, we're going to look at the first 69 of these. Next week, we'll look at the 70th seven, which is still in the future, the last period of seven that's going to be there. Tonight we'll look at 69 of these, and those are already fulfilled. He says, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, well, we know who he is, right? There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be built again with streets and strong defenses, even in times of distress. So a period of time is being predicted here. These sevens, probably sevens of years. I mean, that's what we were just reading about earlier in Daniel chapter seven, right? Those Sabbath years, those seven-year periods. You know, they just finished a 490-year period, right? And now he's predicting another 70 times seven-year period. There's a future 490 he's predicting. And he says, so he's predicting that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. It was, in, it was desolate. Not only am I going to send you back, God says, but it's going to be rebuilt. The temple's going to be rebuilt and the defenses around the city. Sometimes they'd send them back and they could rebuild parts of their city, but they could not rebuild their wall. I mean, that was such a pain to attack a city with a big wall around it. You might sit there for years waiting to starve the people out until you could finally get in there and take them again if they rebelled. No, but he says even the, even the defenses are going to be rebuilt. The streets are going to be rebuilt. This is going to be Jerusalem again. And he says there's going to be a decree for the rebuilding of the walls, the defenses of the city. And then from that point forward, that's when the clock starts. And there will be seven plus 62 seven-year periods. So 69 seven-year periods until... Messiah, the prince, the promised one, the savior we see throughout the Old Testament, he's coming. And then it says, after those 62 sevens, well, what will happen after Messiah, the prince arrives? The Jews were well aware of this. You know, he was gonna set up his kingdom. He was gonna put an end to all evil. It's the eternal kingdom of God. Remember that passage we read last week in Daniel 7? Daniel had this vision and he said, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, honor, sovereignty over all the nations of the world. And his rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Yeah, King Messiah. The days of glory will truly begin at that point. 
They knew what to expect when Messiah the Prince came up, and that's exactly where Daniel 9 goes off script and throws him a curveball. He says, after the 62 sevens, what will happen? The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. That's not supposed to happen. What about that city and temple we just rebuilt in the earlier part of the prophecy? The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. What? Well, if we look at the coming of Jesus Christ, what we have here is really one of the mysteries buried in the prophecies of the Old Testament that become clear in the New is there's predictions of these Messiah reigning powerfully and conquering all evil and setting up an eternal kingdom. And then you've got these predictions of this suffering servant coming and suffering and even dying as a, as a guilt offering. And what the Old Testament was not clear about on purpose is that Messiah would come once to die for sin and then again to do all the other stuff. And that he had to come and die for sins, otherwise there'd be nobody who could be in his eternal kingdom. Because only the righteous get in and nobody's righteous, no, not one. We, we have to have his forgiveness to be allowed into his kingdom. And he had to die for us because justice had to be served. And so Jesus came, 33 CE. He died. He was cut off. He rose from the dead and rose to heaven. But just a few decades after that, the Romans, that's the people of the prince to come. Remember that antichrist we saw last week would come out of the Roman stock? The people, the Romans, would destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's what exactly what happened in 70 AD. Now, the question is, do the numbers work out? It'd be pretty nice if it did. You can see why this would be such an incredible Bible prophecy. And what we have here too is it's the only prophecy I know of in the Old Testament that ties the Messiah directly to his death. But it's, a, it's kind of a strange and confusing one unless you know how to interpret it. Let's, let's go back through and let's take a look at this prophecy. You're to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, remember this is our starting point, until Messiah the Prince, that's our end point, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So that's the time from the starting point to the end point. Again, no funny business here. I'm just reading it right out of the text. Here we learn a little more about that decree because there's multiple decrees related to Jerusalem. It'll be built again with streets and strong defenses, even in times of distress. So what do we have here? The starting point. Let's start here with the starting point. The decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem with streets and strong defenses, even in times of distress. So this is not just go back and rebuild the temple or even just a general go back. It's explicitly authorizing and, and, ver and, and okaying the rebuilding of the city, including the defenses. So that would be a significant step forward here. Now, there are three decrees in scripture related to Jerusalem that sent the Jews back, that authorized various things related to the building of the temple. Ezra 6, there's two of them, and Ezra 7, there's a third recorded for us. But the thing is, all of these refer to the rebuilding of the temple, and they say nothing of Jerusalem's defenses. Very important. These can't be the decrees. These are in the 500s and early 400s BCE. However, there is a fourth 
in Nehemiah chapter 2, that is a very nice match for the decree that we've got here. This is going to be 100 years after the time of Daniel that this decree is going to happen. I'd like to read Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8 for you. Nehemiah was a, a Jew who was also in, in now Persia, because the Persians took over the Babylonians. And he's working for the king. And he says, early the following spring, in the months of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. All right, who is this King Artaxerxes? This is important. He's a guy that we know from history. There's no debate about this. This King Artaxerxes, Longimanus, they called him, Artaxerxes I. Longimanus is Latin for longhand. His right hand apparently was longer than his left one, and he became known for this. So I don't know how this would have looked, but, you know, maybe it's something like this, you know. <laughs> you got the right hand bigger than the left one. And Nehemiah says, I was serving the king his wine. He was Artaxerxes' cupbearer. This was the guy that was sort of like the first line of defense if they tried to poison the king. If the poison was in the wine, the cupbearer, he'd just hang out next to the king, and whenever the king was going to have some wine, he'd just take a drink first. He was like his drinking buddy. <laughs> and then he'd just kind of wait, and if the cupbearer didn't die, then the king would drink the rest of it. And if the cupbearer did die, they'd go get a new cupbearer. <laughs> Pretty good job. Hard to get life insurance. <clears throat> So Nehemiah's hanging out there with King Artaxerxes. And, I, you know, they, the, the king would take a pretty good interest in his cupbearer because his own life depended on it. And he's, he's, he's so bummed out in this passage about what he's just realizing about Jerusalem is still in ruins. And he's been praying about this for a long time. And the king asked me, Nehemiah, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled. I was terrified, but I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And the king was like, oh. This shows that decree couldn't have happened before now because the city and the gates are still in ruins. They haven't been rebuilt up until this point, 100 years later. And the king asked, well, how can I help you? <laughs> and with a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it please the king, and if you're pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. And he's like, and I also said to the king, if it please the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River. Interesting. Letters related to the rebuilding of the city. He said, these letters should say, let Nehemiah travel safely through the territories on his way to Jerusalem. And he says, while you're writing letters, how about one addressed to Asaph, manager of the king's force, instructing him to give me timber. Why? Oh, to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress and the city walls and a house for myself. Gates, walls, fortress, letters. Daniel nine bells should be going off right now. And the king said, yeah. 
he granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. I just want attention, you know? <laughs> but the starting point is the month of Nisan during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. When was this? Do we know about this guy? Yeah, we do. Artaxerxes I of Persia. Here's the Wikipedia article. He reigned 465 to 424 BC. This is not a controversial point. 40 years, king over Persia. So 465, well, all right, so 465, that's the year he ascended to the throne. They usually started counting for your first full year as king, and so his first full year would have been 464. And so negative 464 plus 20, Brad, what do we got? Oh, you actually have a calculator, wow. What a nerd. <laughs> We got an engineer right here, folks. <laughs> Good timing. Okay, All right. So negative 464. Yeah, plus 20. 20 is negative 444. Negative 444, right. So Nisan, the month of Nisan of this 20th year would be March 444 BCE. So that's our starting point for our decree, right? So if we got our timeline here, the commander rebuilt Jerusalem to Prince Messiah comes. 444 BCE, that's where we're beginning. Our little math equation. You know, he divides it into two chunks here, seven sevens and 62 sevens. It doesn't tell us what happens in between the seven and the 62. Maybe that was when they completely finally got all the rubbish, rubble out of Jerusalem and everything completely rebuilt. They had kind of rough going there early. They were under attack while they were building. That's why it says in times of distress, it's going to be rebuilt. But there's seven sevens and then 62 sevens. Well, the seven sevens, seven times seven. 62 sevens, you'd have to multiply 62 by seven. So let's see, seven times seven, 49. Plus 62 times seven, maybe you should give us that one, Brad. 62 times seven. 434. 434, that's what I got too. <laughs> Why don't you add 49 and 434? Equals 43. I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you, buddy. <laughs> now let's do... Drum roll, please. <laughs> Negative 444 plus 483 equals... 39. 39. <laughs> you sure you got that right, Brad? Did you go to public school? Because <laughs> I did too. <laughs> All right. 39. Well, it's pretty close to 33, right? I mean, let's give a hand for Bible prophecy. Whoa, whoa, oh, hold on. I forgot something. My egocentric Western mind has just assumed that everyone counts years the same way that I do. You guys, you guys probably noticed that, right? You're multicultural. 483 years is our interval. Is it possible they counted years differently than us? Is it possible that anyone in the world would do anything differently than 21st century America does it? 
Actually, yeah. <laughs> Today in Jerusalem, for example, a multicultural city, if you went up to someone on the street and asked them what day it was, one person might say, well, it's the 11th of December in the year 2017. That would be the person on the solar calendar, the Gregorian calendar, the calendar we didn't even adopt until the 1750s. This is sort of a new thing even for us, this calendar that we know today and love. Someone else might say, no, it's the 23rd of Kislev, 5778 Anu <laughs> This would be someone on the Jewish calendar, the Hebrew calendar, which uses a lunar calendar with inserting a lunar leap month every couple of years because a lunar calendar is shorter than a solar calendar. Someone else might say, no, it's not the ninth month or the twelfth month, it's the third month. It's Rabbi Al Awal in 1439, Anel Hagire. <laughs> that would be someone using the Islamic calendar, which also has a different starting point and uses lunar months, but they don't do the leap months. And so their, their seasons don't, they slowly move as the years go by to correspond with different months. Other people measure things differently than us. You ever go to Canada and look at the speed limit signs? <laughs> like, sweet, 110? Because <laughs> it's actually like 50 miles an hour. <laughs> but it's Canada, so what would they even do if they gave you a ticket? I mean, it's not like they're going to extradite you. Anyway. It's not, I'm not giving any legal advice here. <laughs> the point is different. People count things differently. And in this case, ancient Jews wanted a different calendar, as were the Babylonians. You see, the ancient Jews, they based their months on the cycles of the moon, which put a normal month at 30 days. Normal month. Every few years, they added a leap month to keep the seasons where they should be. And so, Bible prophecies we find, tend to use 30-day months and 360-day years. They don't know where the leap months are going to be. They're calculating in advance. They're giving, when they say years, they mean 360-day years, 30-day months. For example, here, here's Revelation 11.2. I mentioned this last week. says they'll trample the holy city for 42 months. The very next verse, referring to the very same time period, says they'll prophesy during these 1260 days. Well, 42 months on our calendar would not be 1,260 days. In this calendar, though, the one the prophets were thinking in terms of, a month was 30 days. So we have it right here in Scripture. There's other places in Scripture as well like this. It's not the only one. That link the month to 30 days. There's also ones that say three and a half years equals 42 months equals 1,260 days. So there, we've even got years linked to this 360-day unit of time, which means we've got to convert... Daniel's 483 years into years that we can make some sense of because all of our history has been, you know, laid out on our dating system. So, 483 years times 360 days. Yeah. 173,880. That's what I got too. <laughs> and then we could take our days. And we divide them by 365 and a quarter days because that's how many days there are in a solar year. And that gives us... Oh, I messed up. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> There's no pressure. 
476.057. Yeah, I'll just go uh, 0.06. 476.06 years. All right. So, 444 BCE. Our period of time is 476. We'll just call it 476 years. Drum roll, please. Brad. Negative 444 plus 476 equals? 32. 32. <laughs> so you think Brad's wrong and not the Bible? Brad would disagree sometimes with that. <laughs> 32 is pretty close, right? I mean, off by one. You know what? There's one other thing we should probably do. We should understand how number lines work. Timelines don't have zero years. Number lines do, like if you're going with whole numbers. So for example, if you had a number line, remember these things? <laughs> you might go negative three, negative two, negative one, zero, one, two, three. But if you were counting years, it would look like this. Three BCE, two BCE, one BCE, and then you're immediately in one CE. 2CE, 3CE, 4CE. And so you can see when we're moving from BCE to CE, we have to add one. Notice how the years are one higher than the number line down there on this number line I've drawn here. And so what that means is we've got 476, negative 444, plus 476, plus one for crossing over from BCE to the Common Era, and that gives us 33 CE, which is actually the best date for the crucifixion of Christ. In fact, if you started in the month of Nisan, March of 444 BCE, and you went 476.06 years into the future, where you'd be is at the end of March for, of 33 CE, which is the best date we've got for the Sunday that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to present himself as the king of his city, Palm Sunday. And less than a week later, they had him hanging on a cross. And a couple days after that, he had risen from the dead. But what we have here in Daniel 9, believe it or not, it's a passage that predicts the coming of Christ over 500 years ahead of time. To the year, some say even to the month, it predicts a decree that didn't even exist yet, and then it predicts the time span from that decree to the coming of the Messiah. Not to mention the death of the Messiah and the destruction of the temple shortly thereafter. The date for the decree is accepted by all. I know that if you're like me, you're sort of skeptical. You're like, where are the holes in this? There's no way this is true. The starting point, there's really nowhere to give on that. The dates of Artaxerxes' reign, you, you read it right there out of the encyclopedia. You read it right there out of scripture. 
this decree from the, the Nehemiah chapter 2 passage. 444 is what we're, we're working with here. The pre-Christian date of Daniel cannot be denied. Some people are like, well, maybe the Christians made up this prophecy after the fact. Now, Daniel was written long before the time of Christ. You know, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, at the very, very, very latest that could have possibly been finished was 132 BCE. Was started in the, in the third century BCE. We've got... The Dead Sea Scrolls, unbelievable find in the desert of Qumran. We've got eight copies of Daniel scrolls, the oldest dating to 100 BCE, with portions of Daniel 9 in it. We've got two commentaries on Daniel 9, the oldest of which dates to 146 BCE. Plus the Jews of Jesus' day, they referred to Daniel, Jesus referred to Daniel. Uh, The Jews still have Daniel in their Bibles. They have this passage in their Bibles. You know, they would not be motivated to help the Christians out by giving them one. No, you can't deny the pre-Christian date of Daniel. What if Jesus read Daniel 9 and he was like, I'm going to fulfill this prophecy? Is that possible? No. First of all, there's a lot of other prophecies he couldn't have fulfilled, and this one wasn't exactly under his control. There were a lot of other actors here in this game. But think about this. Why would Jesus want to fake this one? He's like, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to get myself arrested, beaten, stripped, flogged, crucified, and dead. (laughs) What do you think? Oh, so I can fulfill the Daniel 9 prophecy. No. I mean, if he wanted to fake something, he would just ignore the suffering servant passages because they didn't really know how those fit to the Messiah passages. He would have gone a very different route. No, Jesus faking it, think about it for a minute. That's just not viable. What about this? Maybe Jesus died and then the disciples were like, let's make it like this is the Daniel 9 prophecy fulfillment. And then we'll get rich and famous and we'll start a new religion. Is that possible? The disciples wrote the New Testament, right? And the answer to that is also no way is that possible. Let me give you a couple of reasons why. For one, why would they create a lie that would bring them persecution and death? They're going to go to their graves for their testimony about Christ. What do they have to gain by that? They would have recanted long before they were tortured to death. Another point that we might not realize is they didn't have enough chronological information to fake this. They didn't use our system of years back then. You know, BC was not BC. It wasn't like they were like, man, I wonder what's going to happen in zero year. <laughs> it's, it's 4 BC. <laughs> no, they, they just knew it was the third year of Claudius Caesar. It was the fourth year of the reign of Tiberius. That's how they dated things. The way we can look back is we have vast historical records from different cultures different peoples all over the world. And sometimes they would interact with one another. Like they would both record this battle that they had. And then you'd see different connection points between different cultures and other cultures. And so you could link things together that way. And then what was very important to them, it was eclipses, solar, lunar eclipses. You know, if an eclipse happened, they thought the gods were trying to tell them something. And so they made sure to record that. 
And so you'd have in all these histories across the world, you know, the lunar eclipse of 1419 BCE. Well, astronomers are geniuses. And they can go back and they, t- they can tell you the minute that eclipse occurred for, for this culture. And so we've got these hard dates then all over the world, throughout history. History's linking up with one another. And that's why we can come up with a pretty good history of civilization. The disciples didn't have any of that. They, in their era, they sort of knew the Daniel 9 prophecy should be coming about at some point. We read Jews and Romans talking about this, but they thought it was maybe something to do with the Romans. They really couldn't figure it out. Maybe partly because of the dying Messiah part. If the disciples faked it, why don't they ever refer to Daniel 9 in any of their writings? If they're going to that much trouble to fake this thing, don't you think they'd be plastering this all over the pages of the New Testament? They never mention it. The closest you get is Jesus on Palm Sunday when they say, tell your disciples to stop saying you're the Messiah, Jesus says. If they are quiet, the very rocks themselves would cry out. Jerusalem, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That's the closest you get. The earliest church father that even discusses it is Irenaeus in 180 AD. No, the, the, the enemies of Christianity and the Christians really couldn't figure this out in their day, which leads me to think this prophecy wasn't for them. It was for us. So we could look back and see through additional information we've got. We're further from the events, but we've got more information and we can see God showing you some credentials, showing you some identification, some proof, some evidence that Jesus is the Christ. You know, even without the New Testament, we get pretty close on this. Let's just, let's just take the New Testament off the table. We have Daniel 9 and we have secular historians that hated Christianity. What can we learn? How about Tacitus and his annals? He's talking about when Rome burned and people were mad at Nero because the city burned down. And so he had to come up with a scapegoat. And Tacitus says, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations. They were called Christians by the populace. He's not a Christian or even a Christian sympathizer. But he says, you know, Christus tries to give a little history of Christianity. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, he suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius. This guy couldn't be legit. He was crucified by Tiberius. That's the extreme penalty. They couldn't even, they didn't even want to say the word crucifixion because it was so gross. And, you know, it was at the hands of one of our own procurators, Pontius Pilatus, two chronological indicators, Tiberius died in 37 CE. Pontius Pilate only ruled from 26 to 36 CE. There's only a 10-year window. Only a couple of the, the Fridays in that window were even Passovers. There's only a few options. Even without the New Testament, man, we're on the green here. We're inches from the hole, if not in the hole. Tacitus goes on, he says, you know, we thought we, had it, we thought we had it taken down, but then this most mischievous superstition, checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, 
where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. I'm so tired of Rome. Again, you can see he's not a Christian or a pro-Christian. He's just giving some incidental history. But what it does for us is it shows that Christ was crucified somewhere in this 10-year period. And Daniel 9 lands us right in the middle of that period and predicts that he'll be killed too. You've got to have an explanation for this. I've shown this to people. And some of them are really excited about it. Others are like, yeah, I'll have to get back to thinking about that at some point. And then they never do. The question you have to answer is who is Jesus Christ? He's he's showing you his credentials. And he's making some pretty bold claims. He says in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. He says, why won't you come to me? You're missing the scriptures. They point to me. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Do you hunger? Christ offers satisfaction. He says, Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. The scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. He says, I will quench your thirst. I will make you a spring of water bubbling up to eternal life. That's a bold claim. He says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Afraid of death? Jesus Christ is the answer. He's the only one who can lead you out of the other side of the grave. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. He's the only way. A bold claim but a guy who's got the credentials to back it up. You know, at the crucifixion of Christ, at his trial, the night before his death, they had beaten him. They were pounding him with questions. They wanted to get him to say, I am the Christ, so that they could have enough grounds to charge him with blasphemy and kill him. And so they say, if you're the Christ, tell us, in Luke 22. And he says... If I tell you, you won't believe. If I ask you a question, you won't answer. But I will say this. He says, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. You recognize that? The passage we ended on last week. Daniel chapter 7, the coming of the Son of Man to set up his eternal kingdom. And their response was, they killed him. They nailed him to a cross. Are you willing to listen? Are you willing to listen to the evidence that is here? It's not the only one. There's a lot more, but this is a good one, a real good one. Are you willing to listen to Jesus who's calling out? He's standing there at the door. 
Why not ask God for the rest of the evidence tonight? He's knocking on that door. He's standing there. He's shown you his credentials. He's made some claims. Will you let him in? Will you open the door of your heart and let him in and receive eternal life? That's his offer tonight. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, you are the God of history. You do things that no other false gods can do. You declare the end from the beginning. You're the living God. You're the God who speaks. I'm thankful that you have revealed yourself through prophecies, and I'm thankful for this particular prophecy and how much my faith has been built up by it from the very first time I heard it to even today. Going back through this material, God, I thank you that you loved us enough to send your son and that you gave us the credentials to back up his bold claims. I pray if anybody here is has not received that forgiveness, that they would open the door, that they would let Christ in. I pray, too, that we wouldn't stop with stop there, but that we would get these questions answered, Lord, that we'd be Christians that have evidence for our faith. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.